Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. If you have your copy of Scripture, we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3 here in just a few minutes. Uh, Let me start with a couple of pieces of information. One is, next Wednesday night, we will continue this study, given what time we have. We have a church conference, so we've got some information to present to you, some surplus funds. And if this number of people comes on next Wednesday night, we'll have plenty of a quorum to be able to address any of those needs and monies that need to be distributed. So I hope you'll be back next Wednesday. Uh, This upcoming Sunday, I'm going to do an aside sermon. A couple of weeks back, I preached on the qualifications of an overseer. And in a couple of weeks, I'll preach on the qualifications of deacons from that 1 Timothy chapter 3 passage. This Sunday will be an aside sermon on the subject of church polity, that is government, church structure. And uh, I've been thinking about that, wrestling with that, praying through that for a number of months now. And so I'm going to preach that sermon Sunday. And you may, after hearing that sermon, have some questions. And uh, what in the world is pastor talking about? And what does that mean? And so what I want you to do is if you're here Sunday and you're listening to that, or if you're away Sunday and you're listening and you hear what in the world is that about, write those questions down. We're going to try to answer some of those questions in this format next week. So part of next week and part of what we're trying to do with this class is create some informality in our conversation so that if there are some questions that are raised, we can deal with that. One other thing I'm going to do, I haven't gotten this far yet, is I'm going to print out an outline for what we're going to try to do week by week in this particular course. There is an intentionality to what we're doing. If you were to follow a Christian theology textbook, many of them, if not most of them, start with the doctrine of revelation, which is what we're in. We're going to deal tonight with the doctrine of inspiration, which is a specific um, uh, uh, type of doctrine within the doctrine, the greater doctrine of revelation. But there is an intentionality at all that. We're going to talk about the doctrine of revelation, then the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, then get into the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the church. And then eventually we'll get to the last things. They'll be the last things. That's the doctrine of eschatology. But given how far we're progressing, I don't know if that outline's going to take us a year from now, if it's going to take us two years from now. I don't know how long it's going to take us, but I'll try to print that out for you just to keep track of where we are and where we're headed. So we're going to deal with the doctrine of inspiration tonight. And I was reading an article this week, a news article this week, And it referenced a minister of a congregational church up north. Her name is Kaylee McAvoy. She is uh, what we would characterize as a progressive Christian. And the story really focused in on her view of abortion. In in her particular congregation, abortion or pro-choice mentality was pretty normal, pretty typical for their congregation. But the story she had to share was much more personal She got up in the pulpit one particular week and told a story about an abortion that she had had after getting pregnant with her boyfriend, and she was the pastor of the church. And and so in reading that story, it struck me that that is a far different experience than you and I would have if we had someone standing before us. How could a minister still be a minister after getting pregnant with her boyfriend, standing in the pulpit, then talking about the experience that she had when she went to the abortion clinic. Here's her words. 
she said she never felt more known and heard and loved by God than when she entered the doors of a Planned Parenthood. So I read that and I thought, man, how, how does that work? What in the world took place in her life and within progressive Christianity that would let someone who claims to be a proclaimer of God's truth have a perspective on life, on morality, on sexuality, and on leadership within the church that's so distinct from anything that you and I are familiar with. The short end is... Her view of Scripture is far different than our view of Scripture. It's inconsistent. It doesn't track forward with what God says about himself. Now, last week what we did, we talked about the fact that the Bible we have from Genesis to Revelation is a Bible that we can count on from canon and manuscripts. The text that we're working with is the same text for the most part, Truth after truth, doctrine after doctrine, specific after specific that the original readers had of the New Testament and the Old Testament. What we're going to do with the doctrine of inspiration is answer the question, so what is the text that we have? What is the Bible? What does the Bible claim for itself? What is it? And really what we need to do is look at the book of 2 Timothy for what Paul says about Scripture. Let's just read verse 16. Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What is the doctrine of inspiration? Now, if you want to read some other passages of Scripture that are connected to this idea and this theme, I've given you some other Scriptures that highlight different aspects of the doctrine of inspiration or the authority of Scripture. You're welcome to read those on your own. But what is it that Paul is trying to say in this particular text? Well, let me put it this way. Our entire Christian faith... Everything we do, whether it's our practice or whether it's our belief, whether it's our doctrine or whether it's our devotion, all of it turns on whether or not the Bible is what it claims to be. You can even go as far as to say this. Our devotion to Christ is based on whether or not we believe that Scripture is what God says it is. For example, if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said this to the church. He said, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He was saying to the church, Listen, you're being led astray. You're not devoting yourself to Christ as you ought to. And why? Because the enemy has deceived you. Well, how had the enemy deceived? For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted. Essentially, what Paul is saying is this, the enemy has shifted you away from devotion to Christ. And he used the illustration of exactly how the enemy deceived Eve all the way back in the Garden of Eden. What did the enemy say in the Garden of Eden? Do you remember his first words to Eve? Has God said? The distraction, the distortion of anything to do with biblical Christianity always comes back to, or almost always comes back to, a questioning of whether this is what it claims to be. If this is not God's word, 
then we're not responsible for it. But if it is God's word, then we are very responsible for it. So what does the Bible claim about itself? Well, Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Some might say that, hold on a second, what Paul's talking about is the Old Testament scripture. That's what he's talking about. All scripture, all the writings uh, are by inspiration of God. Well, that would be true. In a very practical sense, I think Paul had in mind the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. But there's more included in that understanding because Paul is going to, in other places, quote from both the Old and New Testament and call it scripture. For example, in 1 Timothy 5, chapter 8, 5, 18, Paul writes, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer is deserving of his wages. He makes two quotes of two different places, but calling both scripture. The first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out grain. But the second one comes from a New Testament text, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus had said, the laborer deserves his wages. So let me just say this real clearly. Paul in 1 Timothy 5, before he wrote 2 Timothy, Paul in 1 Timothy 5 had quoted Luke and the Old Testament calling both scripture. So I think by extension, one of the things Paul's doing in 2 Timothy, and one of the things we can take from this is when Paul says all scripture, he means... All scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all of it is, the the claim of scripture is that it is God-breathed, that it comes from God. Uh, Another passage of scripture that indicates this is the way Peter talks about Paul. If you go into 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 15, Peter put it this way, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, and this is really encouraging for us. Peter says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Anybody read Romans 9 lately? Uh, or, or, or how about First Timothy 2? We did that just a few weeks ago. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. That's what Peter said of Paul. But notice what else he says. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Peter makes a claim that Paul's writings are twisted just like the other scriptures. In other words, equating Paul's writings, the New Testament, with scriptures. So what does it mean then if we're going to say Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed? What does that mean? What is the doctrine of inspiration? Well, let me give you five theories of inspiration that have come out over the years by theologians, teachers, pastors. As what do we mean by this word inspiration? Literally, it means God breathed. So the first uh, theory is this, intuition. Intuition, that is one theory of inspiration. This is that the authors had a high degree of insight In this theory, inspiration is essentially based on the natural abilities or genius of the Bible writer. So intuition is this idea that God sort of orchestrated brilliant men in certain ways to be able to write the text of Scripture. That's one theory of inspiration. Here's a second theory of inspiration. That would be illumination. 
This is where the Holy Spirit heightened the author's experiences and insights. In this theory, illuminate, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is different only in degree and not in kind from the Holy Spirit's work in all believers. This essentially would equate inspiration, if you use if you track forward in an illustration uh, sense, John Newton wrote a hymn that is meaningful to us all, Amazing Grace. Right, that, that hymn has probably done as much for any of us spiritually as any piece of music has done for anyone through the course of human history. It is inspired. I, I think it's safe for us to be able to say that. God breathed, maybe not, but inspired in the sense of the word that, it is in, that, that God was working with Newton and he wrote something that's true according to scripture and it moves us. And the reality is, if we use inspiration in that sense, there are many writers that have written inspired works, secular and Christian. There are writers, musicians, artists who have done things that we would use the word, they're inspired. Illumination is that sense. The sense of illumination is the idea that someone just has a unique connection with God in a way that the scriptures are, uh, they wrote it in an illuminated fashion. That's one, another theory of inspiration. Let me give you a third theory of inspiration. It's called the dynamic theory of inspiration. This is combined to the divine and human elements in the writing of Scripture. In this theory, the writer's personal characteristics came through in cooperation with the Spirit's guidance. So this basically articulates that the writers of Scripture, whether it was Moses using his educational background from Egypt, or maybe it was uh, Amos in his uh, prophetic background and his, his uh, situation there in the Old Testament, used those along with a special empowerment, a dynamic empowerment from the Holy Spirit, and that's what we have in the pages of Scripture. That is theory number four. Let me give you theory number five. Excuse me, theory number three. That was theory three. This is theory four. The verbal theory of inspiration. We'll deal with this a little more specifically in a moment. But this is essentially the Holy Spirit guided the thoughts and the writers to pen specific words. This theory has also been called the plenary verbal inspiration theory. I'll come back to that in a second. Reflecting the idea that every word of the original autographs was inspired by God. Uh, just to give you a, a, a heads up, this is the theory I hold, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Let me give you a theory number five. That's the dictation theory. This is the theory that is most often cast back at um, Christians, evangelicals, who hold to the divine inspiration of Scripture as, hold on a second, if this is what you mean, then this is just weird. The dictation theory is this, that God dictated the, the pages of Scripture, every word. In other words, the Holy Spirit in some fashion was sitting on the shoulder of the writer of Scripture telling Matthew what to write and telling Mark what to write and telling Moses what to write. And, and to be fair, there are some places in Scripture where that is exactly the case. Where God is speaking in a vision format, or God is speaking in a in in a, in a personal format. Think of you know uh, Jesus in His words in the New Testament. He's speaking, and so those words are written down. That that is dictation. But dictation, in the strongest sense, in this particular theory, is that every word of Scripture is dictated by God in some direct fashion through every uh, Bible writer. That's the dictation theory. So what do we do with these theories? Uh, what, do, which one do we accept? What well, appears to me 
that the intuition and illumination theories are problematic because here's where they leave us. They leave the scripture open to error. Uh, While we're not going to get into the details of this tonight because we just won't have time, I'm going to talk in the coming weeks about the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy says that scriptures in their original autographs are without error. In other words, they cannot include error because if they're from the mouth of God who cannot lie, and we'll get into the text and scriptures where we make that case, then they, uh, the, the Bible can't be with error. If scriptures are God-breathed, if they come from the mouth of God, like this text argues, then I believe we need to hold to the doctrine of inerrancy. Intuition and illumination open up the doors for a sin us to be able to look at scripture and say, well, Moses was illuminated, but not illuminated enough. Or, or this gospel writer had some intuition, but he may have been wrong about this issue. And that's the way many of the higher critics of New Testament, of the New Testament and of scripture kind of get at some of the things that they don't like in the text of scripture. That's essentially how you can argue that the Bible has errors if you have an inspiration theory or theory of inspiration that doesn't adequately account for the text as God. God gave it. I also have an issue with the dictation theory because I just don't think that's normative. I don't think that's the way that God spoke the majority of the words of the Old and New Testament into being. Because when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, you see the characteristics, the demeanor, the personality of the writer come through in the text. It's not as if there is a, 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 a single author in the sense it's only God coming through the text. God does come through the text because it is him breathing through, but he does so using Jeremiah's sense of sorrow and sadness as we read when we worked through the book of Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah struggled and he shared his struggles. You see the brilliance of someone like Moses putting together the, the, the first five books of the Bible. That comes through in the text. You see the compassion of someone like Mark who is interested in, in people understanding who Jesus was. It comes through in the text. You see the brashness of someone like Peter or you see the boldness of someone like Paul. In other words, dictation doesn't adequately account for the personality of the writers in the text. Uh, the dynamic theory gets a little closer at that and I know some folks that hold that as the theory of inspiration but for me I believe that the verbal plenary theory of inspiration is the one we ought to hold and here are some reasons why. Let me give you three Greek words and their definitions. They're on the sheet in front of you. Pasa, that's all. That's all. All scripture. All, every part of scripture. Paul did not give any Room in the text for there being some scripture that is not God breathed. In other words, he's not allowing for us to walk away from 2 Timothy chapter 3, not allowing us to walk away from that thinking, okay, I may not like the minor prophets, so I'm not going to believe the minor prophets. No, all scripture, all scripture is God breathed. Graphe is writings or scripture. Uh, that's the second word there. All scripture, and we've already defined scripture as both the Old and New Testament. Paul would have absolutely believed all of the Old Testament was inspired, God breathed. I think he held that the New Testament was as well. The church certainly affirmed that as we talked about the canonization of the New 
New Testament writings, the acceptance of those writings within the first 30, 40, 50 years of New Testament experience, and certainly as church tradition has affirmed over the last 2,000 years of history. So all scripture is what God breathed, and that Greek word is theopneustos. It's the idea that God spoke it out. In other words, it's his very words. It's almost as if Paul is echoing Jesus in this text. If you remember when Jesus interacted with Satan in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said what? When Satan tempted him to turn rocks into bread, stones into bread, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that what? Proceeds out of the mouth of God which is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. So Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8, I believe. He's quoting the Old Testament to Satan in the wilderness at the temptation. And he's saying man shall live by all the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. So when Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed, what's he claiming? He's claiming that from Genesis to Revelation, Old and New Testament, the words of scripture are spoken out, breathed out by God which really fits how we would believe that the verbal plenary theory works because of the idea that it is uh, the Holy Spirit working through the authors of Scripture. believe that the Holy Spirit governed that process, working in the authors to give us the text of Scripture. So here's the next blank. According to 2 Timothy 3.16, the doctrine of inspiration is verbal and plenary. I'll define both of those words. Verbal and plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. It may be on there. It is. It's on the screen. Verbal and plenary. What do I mean by verbal? I believe that every word of the original autographs of Scripture is breathed out by God, meaning that it's inspired. That God didn't just give us the big idea and let Peter figure the big idea out how he wanted to in his letter. Or the same thing with Paul. I believe that God inspired every word of Scripture. And here's where that encourages us. When we really get down into the details of each of the words of Scripture, as we study and as we dive in, the words of Scripture, certainly their meaning, certainly their context, certainly their greater occasion in letters, they mean something. They matter to us. They mean something important and beautiful and wonderful. The, the idea that it's verbal means that every word of Scripture, it's not just the ideas, it's not just the themes, but every word of Scripture is breathed out by God. Plenary is, carries with it the idea of all. That all the words of Scripture are breathed out by God. It's not just part of it. It's not just the parts we like. It's not just the parts that deal with salvation and, and major Christian doctrines. No, all of it is breathed out by God. All of it actually has something to do for the way we live our lives as followers of Jesus. So according to 2 Timothy 3.16, the doctrine of inspiration is verbal and plenary. Now let me give you some takeaways. We'll spend a couple of minutes on these. If God inspired the scriptures, then we are accountable to them. So you may be sitting here as a, as a firm evangelical believer in the Bible. Say, okay, I get that. I have no problem, Pastor, with what you're saying. None whatsoever. I believe that all scriptures God breathed. Well, here's what that means for us. Then I don't have a right to ignore this. If I believe God wrote it, then I'm responsible to it. I am accountable to scripture. That means I don't only have to 
deal with it in terms of what I believe, but it also means that we need to deal with it in terms of how we behave. And we'll get to that in an application sense in just a moment. Maybe you're here and you're a little more skeptical. You're not convinced that all the scriptures are, are, are written by God and you're, you're, not, you're not sold on that. Well, here's the challenge with that. We're accountable to them also means that we're accountable to what they teach us. Paul, earlier in the text, notice what he said. Verse 14 to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's scripture. Notice this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scripture is the framework for us being able to explain to anyone that they're lost and that God is holy and that salvation is possible. There's no other framework for that. Certainly there are other methods of evangelism that we would, you know, platforms, ways to communicate and illustrate the gospel, but they all flow out of the teachings of scripture. When we ignore and avoid scripture, here's what happens. People don't hear about how to be saved. As I've mentioned before, the the book uh, by Lisa Childers, another gospel that deals with progressive Christianity, or like that story that I started out with in illustration form to begin with, salvation in that church where there's a pastor who's standing up talking about her abortion, there's no salvation being preached in that congregation. Not, not genuine gospel-centered salvation. There may be allusions to Jesus. There may be allusions to the resurrection. But I promise you, if you're going to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture on things like life and morality, and, and we might quibble and disagree with that denomination on women in ministry, but if you're going to ignore clear teachings of Scripture, then here's the problem. You're going to ignore the things you don't like either. And you know what progressive Christianity most doesn't like? They don't like the fact that the starting point for human experience is not that we're good people. The starting point in a biblical worldview is that we're not good people. That we're sinful, that we're far from God, that we need salvation. So we need Jesus to die on a cross to bring us salvation. And if we don't talk about Jesus dying on the cross to bring us salvation, there's no salvation. Nice people don't go to heaven. Kind people don't go to heaven. Well, there might be some nice people and kind people in heaven, but they won't be in heaven because they're nice and kind. They'll be in heaven because they're forgiven. So if the scriptures are God-breathed, then we're accountable to them. And that primarily means that it's the framework for salvation. One of the reasons we're even doing this on Wednesday nights and working through the, the authority of Scripture. Why do we begin with the authority of Scripture? Folks, because when I stand up on a Sunday morning and I talk to you about what God's Word says and I invite people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if the framework of what we're saying isn't authoritative and doesn't come directly from God, it doesn't really matter what I'm saying or what anybody else is saying because I'm just not that smart. I can't change people's lives. It's not the communicator. And it's not the niceness of the story. It's the authority of the message. It's what God says. That is God breathed. Now that brings some real encouragement to us as Christians. Because then the framework for our faith doesn't rest on, get this, it doesn't rest on our knowledge. It doesn't rest on our insights. It doesn't rest even on the purity of our application. It rests on what God has said. It's on a much firmer foundation than even our faith experience. Or even the way that we behave. That's the other thing about that lady, that pastor. Did you catch what she said? I felt 
I felt more loved by God. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. All of us have experiences of feeling. Muslims have experiences of feeling. Hindus have experiences of feeling. Atheists have experiences of feeling. Progressives have experiences of feeling. Experiences can be wonderful. Experiences can be dramatically devastating too. What we feel emotionally can be transformative in a wonderful way. What we feel emotionally can also be devastating. And if you rely on your feelings as the authoritative framework for your Christian experience, let me tell you something, your Christian life is going to go up and down and up and down. It may even revolve around the type of song that's been sung on Sunday morning if it's experience-driven because some of you like this style of song or some of you like that style of song. I I like certain styles of song too. But if it is not feelings-oriented, if it is word-oriented... And guess what? If we're singing a song that I may not prefer stylistically and the word of the song is still absolutely true, guess what? I can still worship because the framework is the truth, not the feelings. Not the feelings aren't important. It's just that they're not primary. Does that make sense? So that's application number one or takeaway number one. I'll give you takeaway number two. If God inspired all the scriptures, then we cannot pick and choose which scriptures to believe and apply. This is the biggie. This is what is, uh, deals with inerrancy. And what, like I said, we'll come back to that in weeks to come. I'll define it. We'll explain it. I'll show you where, where this uh, kind of shifts in terms of contemporary culture, in terms of evangelical history, Baptist history, where we have lost inerrancy. Okay, the Bible has errors. Then basically what that means is we people will pick and choose which scriptures they like and what scriptures they don't like. That's the bottom line of that. If God breathed out all the scriptures then I'm not allowed to go to the text and say, I don't like this one, so I'm going to pull it out. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of our great founding fathers, okay? Fantastic founding father, enlightenment thinker, uh, major author, primary author of the Declaration of Independence. Do you know how big his Bible was? His Bible was about that big. Because what Thomas Jefferson did as an enlightenment thinker is he went through all the things in Scripture that he didn't like, or that he didn't agree with, or that he couldn't make sense of, and he cut them out. And he pasted the Bible he liked together. I'm, um, I'm grateful for Thomas Jefferson as a founding father, but I'm not entirely sure I'm going to see him in the future. And that breaks my heart. I mean, it should break our heart, right? Because if you don't believe all of it, you're going to cut out what is related to salvation. You're going to cut out what is related to things that we don't like and don't want to deal with. If you think of contemporary experience, what's going to get cut out in our contemporary culture? Anything that has to do with a biblical view of morality and sexuality. It's just going to be cut out and forget it. Everything that has to do with that is going to be out of Scripture. Once you take that out of Scripture, then what you're essentially saying to everybody who's living an immoral, unethical, sexual lifestyle is, God approves. He's not going to hold you accountable for that behavior. And here's the reality. If you walk up to God in in heaven and say, God, what I did here wasn't sinful. 
You don't get to make that definition. I don't get to make that definition. God is the only one that gets to say what is right and wrong. And so what is essentially happening when we pick and choose scripture is we're picking and choosing things that will eventually keep certain people out of heaven. I'm not saying that if there's a struggle with sin, we don't get to go to heaven. I'm saying if we're not willing to deal with and come to God and agree with him on what is sinful, then we're not going to receive the solution to that sin, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if scriptures God breathed, we don't get to pick and choose what we believe. Let me give you a final takeaway. If God inspired all of the scriptures, and this is the last part of 316, If he inspired all the scriptures, then we must allow God's word to convict, change, and transform us. So scripture is given to us for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped um, for all good works. And then Paul's going to go on in the next chapter. It wouldn't have been chapters when he wrote it. The very next section of the letter and tell Timothy, here's your job, Timothy, preach the word. The reason you're to preach the word is because the word is what transforms us. I've told you this before. it's, It's worth repeating. If I could get you as a follower of Jesus to do one thing. One thing. Can you imagine what it would be? Some of you think, man, the pastor is going to tell me he just wants me at church every Sunday. You know what? I do want you at church every Sunday, but that wouldn't be the one thing I'd tell you to do. Dr. Mike and Dustin might, might like me to say that, that, that the pastor wants you to sing. I want you to sing. I think you ought to sing. I think you ought to open your mouth and praise God. I don't care what it sounds like. God doesn't care what it sounds like. It's with the honesty that comes out of your heart. That'd be wonderful. But if I could get you to do one thing, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be come to church. It wouldn't be sing. If I could get you to do only one thing in your Christian life, it would be read God's word. You know what changes people? God's word changes people. When you, when you open up the pages of scripture and read what God has said, that is God speaking to you. I'm not saying there's no other way God can speak to you. We'll get into that in another, another, another one of these doctrinal studies. But you know the way God speaks to you? Speaks to you through the pages of scripture. Every single day, God talks to me. Every day. Because every day, I get up and I read this Bible. Now, some days I listen better than others. Some days I apply better than others, just like you. If I could get you to do one thing, it would be read the Bible every day. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's absolutely what I'd tell you to do. If you're a skeptic, if you're here and you're like, eh, I'm not sure. I'm not, I am just not sure, Pastor, what you're talking about. I dare you. To read the Bible every day and just see if God might say something to you through the Bible. I believe he will because I believe uh, Hebrews 4 says that the Bible is living and sharp and it works. It changes us. And how I know that, I know it from my own experience. I know it because the Bible says it, but I know it from also looking out at you folks. You're not the same people you used to be. And what changed you? Well, God changed you. How did he change you? Changed you from something that was said in the pages of scripture. A sermon, in an application, something, but it came from scripture that God used to transform and change you.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.